Into the Bad Quaker Podcast, where liberty is our mission. Today is Saturday, November 2nd, 2013, and this is podcast number 358. My name is Ben Stone. You probably won't hear this podcast until Monday, but we're recording it today. Uh, with me on Skype is a very special guest. I'm very happy to have him on, Antonio Bueller. Antonio is a West Point grad. He had a distinguished Army career, including being awarded the Bronze Star. Uh, after he came back to the U.S., he founded Peaceful Streets. Pro- the, he <laughs> he founded the the Peaceful Streets Project, and Peaceful Streets has handed out. Well, on one night, they handed out over. Uh, they handed out a hundred handheld video cameras uh, to be used for police accountability. Uh, just in one night, they handed these out in in Austin, Texas. The Austin Chronicle readers voted Antonio Bueller. Uh, Austin's best activist for 2012 and voted Peaceful Streets uh, Project the best grassroots movement of 2012. And Antonio, I couldn't be happier to uh, welcome you on to Bad Quaker Show. Thanks for having me. I don't know if you recall or not, we kind of bumped into each other at Porkfest just very momentarily as you were uh, headed over to get a haircut. I do remember. <laughs> Um, and, and just in case anybody's worried, he didn't have a lot of haircut, just a little, a little trim. Um, Antonio, uh, so, you know, mm, like I said, before we started recording, I don't want to put any words in your mouth here, but the, I was reading the, uh, dirtbag president of the Austin police association basically gave a threat that if you and the other activists around the Austin area continued doing what you were doing, which basically you're just recording police, you're not like, you know, you're not running up and stomping on their toes or anything. But he he essentially said that if you guys continue that, they're gonna, you know, they're there's people that are gonna get hurt. He's he's essentially threatening to bust heads if uh, if you guys keep holding the Austin police responsible for their actions. That's a that's a pretty violent and open threat coming from a public official like that. It is, and it's not really a surprise because these guys um, act as if they're gang members all the time um, in their Thin Blue Line gang. Uh, what was interesting was that no one really picked up on it. The media just sort of, you know, dismissed it even the the uh, radio or even the tv station that actually caught the threat on on video um so uh if if we said something like that that would have been huge news and, and they would have like talked about how we were domestic terrorists and what a threat we were to the safety of all these police um so it's pretty disappointing that once again the police are treated in a completely different way than the rest of us are treated if they commit crimes they get away with it if we look at them wrong, we get arrested and charged with crimes. If they if they threaten us with violence, you know, no one even notices. If we 
if we say something that can even be perceived as potentially being violent, then they uh, stomp their feet up and down talking about how, how we're terrorists. So um, I, I'm looking forward to the day when society can move forward and they can start viewing public servants, um, the people who live off of our tax dollars, as having a greater responsibility and a higher bar for uh, behavior than the rest of us. It's really weird, too, because uh, I'll call him out by name. There's an Austin cop named Ricky Jones, badge number 4846. And um, he was mouthing off to you and made some statements, some threats, and essentially was breaking the law. And they smacked his hand a little bit, gave him 10 days off. But what he was doing... Uh, there's plenty of video evidence of all kinds of other Austin cops doing exactly the same thing, and they only smacked this Ricky Jones's fingers a little bit. They didn't say squat to the other cops involved. And I, I wonder, looking back on that, you know, I wonder if maybe this Ricky Jones is not quite in uh, in the in crowd with it, within the cops, because I know cops kind of have. Uh, they're even within their own cop society. They have little, you know, uh, um, little groups that prefer one another and others that exclude each other. So I can't help but to think if, uh, if this Ricky Jones cop wasn't, uh, not, not that he was, not that he was being made an example of, but just that he wasn't, you know, one of the in crowd. I agree with you. I think that not all cops are equal and that there are certainly some that um, are more in favor. For example, Patrick Gaborski, the guy committed felony crimes on video and he never uh, got even a reprimand. Um, so uh, I, I think that you're absolutely right. Um, I know that Chief Acevedo, he has come under a lot of pressure and scrutiny lately, uh, particularly with um, an innocent person uh, who hadn't committed a crime other than running a red light. Uh, being shot at at a traffic stop, um, and then um, Larry Jackson, a man who, again, had not committed a crime, uh, had walked away from a casual conversation with a cop. Uh, that cop, uh, his name was Charles Kleinert, then commandeered a vehicle uh, that was nearby, forced a, a member of the public to go on a chase for this guy who had walked away, um, jumped out of the car when he finally saw him, ran underneath the, uh, the guy ran underneath the bridge, and then Kleinert shot Larry Jackson once in the back of the neck. And so people are g- getting really upset in Austin, people who normally were supportive of the police, wanting to know what's going on, why aren't these people, cops who are killing people and shooting at people, um, essentially getting, um, reprimanded and arrested. And so Acevedo's been essentially smacking the hand and firing uh, people over minor infractions as a way to show the world, hey, look, I'm tough on my cops, just not the cops who commit felony crimes. That is really messed up. I was reading about, uh, and it's not just Austin. This is happening all across the country. I was reading about um, a Lee County, Florida cop that uh, basically he was at a bar and he spotted this guy who you know, maybe, maybe the guy had too much to drink or maybe not, who knows. But he offered the guy a ride home in the squad car. So the guy is like, okay, sure. He takes the ride home, except the cop, literally the cop drove him out into the middle of nowhere, beat him and robbed him and left him out there. Uh, and then he goes back, you know, the guy eventually goes to the cops to turn in the fact that he'd been beaten and robbed by a cop. 
And the cop tries to make it out as though the guy had, uh, had attacked him, even though all the evidence present was that the cop had literally, um, singled the guy out from a bar, taken him out and beat him and robbed him. It, it's like, you know, at some point in time, people have to realize that cops are not magic fairy, you know, fairyland, uh, uh, good, uh, good hearted people that are just here only to serve us. They're human beings, which means a good portion of them are not good people. Yeah. And I would, I'd go even further. I would say that, um, a much higher percentage of them are not good people relative to the regular population for a couple of reasons. And one being that human nature is such that when we give people authority and control, uh, they're often, they're, they're likely to abuse that. And the, and the, uh, Milgram experiment and the Stanford prison experiment, uh, give examples of, of, of how human psychology, um, really allows for, uh, abuses to happen. And then at the same time, who are the people who typically seek out positions of authority and power so that they can harm other people? Well, it's usually not the angels of society. And so the people who tend to go into politics, the people who tend to go, uh, into the police force, uh, oftentimes those are the people that, you know, we, we would least want to be in those positions. So, um, I think that we have to understand what, how humans think and how humans act, um, when we're looking at this issue of do we need police? What's the appropriate role of police? Because as long as we have police, we're going to have people abusing it and abusing the position. And, you know, if we're going to have police, um, if people actually believe we do need police, which I don't necessarily believe, then at a very minimum, we need very, very strict and extreme controls on them. And there has to be very serious consequences for them committing crimes while they're in uniform. And, and right now it's the exact opposite. There's very few controls on them. In fact, there's protections uh, for them to, co- to commit their crimes. And when they uh, and when they're actually arrested or um, charged with crimes, they almost never get convicted. I hate to pick on this poor guy because I, I've picked on him so much in the last couple of years. But Ron Paul made a really uh, sad statement the other day, talking to Tom Woods in an interview, and he said that uh, he said that he's not an ANCAP, he's not an anarchist, and the reason he gave is because um, he couldn't uh, he couldn't trust private you know, competing security agencies to provide security for people. He really believes, you know, evidently that we have to have police. And I, and that just struck me as so opposite of logic. If you look at, at police and you look at the history of police and how they developed and they, they essentially came from street gangs in cities like London and New York and so forth that made deals with the, uh, essentially made deals with the city government to you know to control the streets just like a just like a gang does today the only difference is that they were sanctioned by the local government usually for the purpose of getting some mayor elected and it's really not all that much different today i mean they polished it up a little bit but essentially it's like you said earlier really they really are just a street gang yeah well i I was actually a huge supporter of ron paul this last election and i campaigned you know, heavily for him. I was organizing marches um, on a monthly basis. I was organizing weekly runs and sine waves. Um, I was extremely active. Um, I have like seven Ron Paul shirts. I would wear one each day of the week. Um, but I do think that there's a major, uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, 
too many people view Ron Paul as God and take everything that he says as the truth when Ron Paul gets things wrong, just like everyone else. And this is one case where he definitely got something wrong. And I think that part of it might be just the, uh, you know, position of privilege that Ron Paul has had in his life where he hasn't seen um, the the damage and the harm that these police do. Um, you know, there's no amount of safety and security and, and um, you know, order that uh, can make up for someone that you love being killed by a cop, you know, and when they were innocent, when they weren't committing any crime or, you know, having a partner get thrown in jail for decades because they happened to be selling, um, you know, a, a drug that someone else had wanted to buy um, or, you know, having cops, you know, beat the crap out of your son or daughter because they, they, they mouthed off to the cop. Um, I think that far more people in society are harmed by police than are, then benefit from them. Um, but the reality is, is that there are some people in society that benefit from the police more than get harmed. And, you know, those people are people in positions of privilege, you know, and I would say, uh, you know, a lifetime representative um, in the U.S. Congress would be one of those people. He's not one of those people that the cops are going to target, uh, single out and, and abuse. Um, you know, same with uh, being a pediatrician. Um, or, or, or a gynecologist, you know, I mean, he was living a better, um, socioeconomic, uh, existence than most people. And those aren't the ones that the cops single out. The cops tend to single out people who are poor, people who, um, you know, are, uh, maybe minorities or homeless. And, and those are people that see it a lot more evidently. You know, they, they see the fact that these cops destroy lives and, and commit crimes against the people and it's shocking when people who understand individual liberty and they understand that power government power um causes Im immense harm and that the free market usually provides much better services than the government that when it comes to things like the military or the police where they can throw that sort of obvious logic out the window and say oh but in this case yeah, sure. We we need to amass all this power and authority, you know, amongst these people who usually are not the best in society. I always thought that was sort of a, and I think maybe Stefan Molyneux might be the one that's pointed this out in the best, uh, the best wording. But I always thought that was really weird that you know we can't uh, we can't trust people because some people are bad. Therefore, we need to create a monopoly on violence create economic incentives for the worst people in society to move into those positions of authority and then trust those people in authority with that manip uh, uh, monopoly on violence and expect them to somehow behave good, even though we've already made the assumption that a good portion of human beings are not good. It, it's really, I don't I didn't even say it as, as clear as some of the others have, but it's really just a horrible leap in faith that that's going to work out good. It's it's really kind of goofy. Yeah, and the reality is, is I think that most people look at the worst case scenarios. Um, they look at they look they look at the, the the truly degenerates of our society. You know, people who are willing to go around and you know just rant, randomly kill people. Um, you know, assault old people just to take their purse. Uh, pedophiles. Uh, just people who 
are just disgusting human beings that they want nothing to do with. And so they make a trade. They say, you know what? I'm willing to give up my liberty, you know, just like Ben Franklin pointed out. I'm willing to give up, you know, my, my liberty. I'm willing to give immense power and control to these people who are potentially going to do very terrible things because I'm worried about um, other people who I would have a hard time dealing with otherwise. And, you know, the way I look at it, the, there's no difference between a cop who uses his badge to beat the crap out of someone as another thug who just decides that he's going to beat the crap out of someone. Um, you know, they're both criminals. And uh, for some reason, people can be more they can get comfortable with the idea of a cop being a criminal relative to just an average person. So, something you kind of hinted to earlier as well is that there's a, you know, um, the kind of people who tend to be police, there's uh, incentives there to for the worst people in society to, to actually do that. And there's numbers that back that up. The FBI's own statistics show that cops are more likely to rape than any other, uh, you know, job um, description, if you, or however you want to look at it, cops are more likely to uh, kill someone outside of the line of duty. Not even including, you know, uh, uh, if you want to call it licensed violence that they do, but just in their private lives, the cops are more likely to be involved in domestic disputes with their spouses, more likely to have, you know, violence in uh, in private situations. And the, and the reason why is not necessarily because, you know, uh, being a cop makes you evil. It's because having that kind of a job tends to draw people of that ilk into that job and reward them for that kind of behavior. So it not only, like you mentioned, the experiments that show that authority like that actually creates more and more of that, in addition to that, it's a natural draw to people who tend to use violence as the answer to their problems. Yeah, and I do think at the same time that there are some decent people who join these organizations because maybe they want to help someone out or maybe they, they're just looking for a better economic life for themselves and they don't necessarily want to become bullies. But then you join this fraternity, and it really is a fraternity. They, they wear their little you know, thin blue line shirts and put decals on their car. Um, you know, they, they, they have mottos and stuff. And so they join this little thin blue line fraternity and all of a sudden it becomes very apparent that the fraternity comes first. And, you know, during their time within the fraternity, you know, they're, they're taught to treat American people as insurgents, people who can't be trusted, people who need to be uh, taught lessons and, and they engage in violence and they see it. And then I think that there's a lot of decent people who join the police, um, not even the ones who join just so that they can abuse. But then unfortunately, um, when you're in that culture and society, um, I, I see a lot of them just going from, you know, decent to bad. I don't know if they have this in Texas or not. Um, when I lived in California and when I lived in Nevada, I didn't see this. But here in Ohio, uh, there's this weird thing that has always struck me as odd. You see cars driving around with this emblem on their license plate that's hooked to their license plate frame. And it's about, I'd say it's probably two and a half or three inches across. 
and it's the symbol of the fraternal order of police. And they've got that hooked on their license plate, and it's actually it's big enough that it blocks some of the letters on their license plate. And they drive around with this, and you see that, and you think, okay, now, uh, so this person is telling anybody who looks at their license plate that they're a member of the fraternal order of police, or they support it, or whatever, they're a, a union member, or whatever that the symbol is for. Well, how could that possibly? Why would a person do that? Why would you put that on your license plate, unless? You're letting other cops know that, hey, yeah, I know I'm doing five miles over the speed limit. I know I'm doing ten miles over the speed limit. I know I didn't signal that last turn, but, hey, I'm in the club. And and why is it that they can block part of their license plate number like that, but if mine gets muddy, I can get pulled over for it uh, just for no other reason? Or if the light is out on my uh, license plate, uh, you know, I can get pulled over and harassed for that. But they've got this symbol blocking, you know, a good portion of their license plate. And, hey, that's fine because they've got the the magic symbol. Yeah, well, I actually posted a picture on Facebook from a police forum. And the initial question was, uh, if you pull over a a law enforcement officer um, who's off duty and he is a concealed uh, carry guy, do you go ahead and secure the pistol? And so... um, and the overwhelming majority of the people who responded was like, what the hell are you talking about? Um, once we find out that it's a cop, you know, the stop is over. <laughs> and, you know, the, uh, you know, the, you know, he's no longer being detained. Now, now it's, uh, about building relationships. And so it's very clear that, that the police do treat each other, um, you know, as buddies. They're not going to hold each other accountable. Um, it's part of their code. Uh, and that's why I don't believe in things like uh, internal affairs, because ultimately they're going to work a lot harder to protect each other than they are to hold each other accountable. Um, but, yeah, there there's a it's a messed up system when these people have all this authority and power. And with that authority and power, what they do is they come down hard on the people. But when it's one of their own, the people who are supposed to you know, exhibit these values and who are supposed to, uh, you know, be the ones enforcing law, uh, they actually allow them to get away with the law, uh, with, with breaking the law. You know, that's a major problem. And that's why I just don't believe what Ron Paul says. We just, we don't need them. Um, I have not needed a cop. Um, I think that we would live in a better society if we got rid of, rid of the police and we organized voluntarily. But again, I think that at the end of the day, it's really hard for people to get over that because we have so many degenerates in our society who scare the hell out of people. And unfortunately, um, we don't live in a society where people uh, self-police, where people hold each other accountable. Um, so therefore, people want to go ahead and defer to the state. And I think a lot of that is the laziness of people just you know, getting accustomed to calling the police every time something happens rather than, you know, your neighbor, you know, so your neighbor's uh, tree is overgrowing the property line a little bit. And so they call, they call the city, they call and complain to the city rather than saying to their neighbor, Hey, you know, maybe your tree needs to be trimmed or something. They'll call the city or they'll, you know, uh, uh, and whatever the situation is, we, uh, Halloween came by the other day. And so people are driving too fast through the neighborhood when children are outside doing their Halloween stuff. And uh, so right away, you know, people have to call the cops. Well, how about if you just, 
wave at the driver and say, hey, slow down, you know. Why don't you handle things uh, on a peaceful, civil basis among neighbors rather than getting the police involved every single time that something comes up? And I think a lot of it is conditioning. We're taught, you know, to always call 911. But I think a part of it is laziness, too. We just don't want to go and talk to our neighbor and say, hey, uh, you know, that, that tree is overhanging. I think it's going to fall on my shed or whatever. People prefer to call the city for it. Yeah, human beings, like, tend to avoid conflict. And um, the more it, – it's a shame because sometimes conflict needs to happen. Sometimes you have to have those difficult conversations in order to move forward. And so um, – with the police, it's just really easy for people to opt out of doing the responsible thing, of doing a decent thing and just having a conversation with someone. Um, and, and they call someone. I've just seen so many, you know, terrible stories of mothers calling the cops because, uh, because a son is just, uh, you know, not listening to her and then the cops come and kill him, you know, and it, it happens almost on a daily basis. It seems where a situation like that happens where a cop gets called you know, because someone wanted help. And then they ended up killing that person or someone that they cared about. And then it also has to do a lot with our education system, our schooling system. And, you know, we put these kids in schools at such a young age and we teach them that authority must be listened to, um, that when we, when we have a problem, we should just turn to the teacher or the principal and, you know, seek out their help, um, that we should trust police and the police are our friends. And then uh, people who've gone through the system grow up really believing that. And I think that a lot of people believe it until um, they get themselves into a terrible situation. And then they realize that the cops are not their friends, but um, because they were conditioned to believe it. So at one point they ended up getting into a terrible situation where now they're in jail. They've been uh, violently assaulted or raped or, or murdered. You, you know, you bring up a really good point here and, uh, and if you think about school, traditional school like we have in the U.S., you have a child who's four or five years old, maybe six years old, and they've lived a fairly peaceful life, on, you know, in, or at least we hope in most situations. And then you take them and you put them into this regimented situation where they have to ask permission to go to the bathroom. They have to ask permission if they want to look out a window. They have to ask permission if they want to stand up and maybe stretch or move around. They can't talk freely among friends. There, it's, it's a very regimented, uh, non-human. I mean, it's very dehumanizing what, what we do to little four, five, six-year-old children to, you know, to teach them. And this is not teaching. This is, it's it's more like punishment than teaching. It's not a, a learning experience to break a person's spirit and force that kind of thing on them. Uh, I'm going to break real quick for a commercial here. Uh, and when we get back with Antonio Bueller, um, we're going to go into unschooling and homeschooling a little bit, which happens to be Antonio's uh, one of Antonio's specialties. Folks, stick, stick with us. We'll be right back. The Electronic Frontier Foundation, or EFF, fights to protect your rights in the digital world. When a patent troll threatened podcasters, they fought back. 
EFF has also defended your right to encryption and has sued the NSA to end the government's mass suspicionless surveillance. There are different ways you can help EFF, from donations to signing petitions to writing your representatives to just spreading the word. Find out more at EFF.org. That's EFF.org. Hi, folks. I hope you're enjoying the uh, interview with Antonio Bueller. I had a lot of fun talking to him. He's a really great guy. He's just a really, you know, you can tell talking to him that he's just a really good, solid human being. Anyway, I wanted to interrupt this and give kind of a quick update as to what's going on. If you're uh, not sure what I'm talking about, I put up a, uh, a post on BadQuaker.com that there wasn't that there was going to be a reduced amount of activity at BadQuaker.com for a while, maybe until the first of the year. And then uh, we've gone on and released several uh, interviews and podcasts and so forth, so forth since then. So uh, there was some concern and uh, as as to why I was putting up that notice and what was going on. So I thought I would just touch that really briefly in this commercial break. My uh, my wife and I are going through a pretty big transition for us. We've been in this house in Ohio for uh, I think over eighteen years. And we're in the process of moving out of it. We have new, we have tenants that are coming in, uh, in, in a couple of weeks. And so we're really up to our ears, uh, busy trying to, uh, to get everything packed and get the house ready to, uh, to have tenants in it. And, uh, we're going to be on, you know, in the motorhome on the road full time where we spent in the last year, we've spent about five and a half months in the motorhome. So I think we're ready to pull the trigger and just go full time. And what that means is just an unbelievable amount of work to get a house that we have been living in for that long to get it emptied, everything, all of our possessions boxed up and stored and then get the house ready for other people to move in. It's a lot of work. In addition to that, I have, you know, uh, without getting into a big thing, I have a constant ongoing health problems that we're struggling with, but that's not really a big part of this issue. It kind of slows us down, but it's, but it's not the, you know, the major, uh, thrust of the issue. The main thing is just the overwhelming quantity of work in getting this house ready. And then we also have to get the motorhome ready. The motorhome has to be prepared for, you know, for full-time living like that and for travel. So that's what's going on with us. Now, in addition to that, I wanted to say that I have been uh, really badly backed up on my email. If you've sent me an email and I haven't responded, it's because I'm, I've just my inbox is just completely out of control, and I, I'll, I'm going to as soon as possible dig through and start trying to answer all these emails. And on the same note, you know, we we had a lot of donations that came in in September. And then in October, there was just waves of really, uh, blew me away the, the amount of support that we got in October. And I really appreciate that. I, I haven't been able to go through all of the, the donations and answer all of the emails, you know, and, and thank each person individually. I haven't got to do that. Uh, I have thanked some, but I haven't got to all of them yet. But I, I really wanted to let you know that we do appreciate those donations, including the bitcoins that came in. And, uh, uh, you know, and our expenses for 2014 to keep the website up and everything are covered. And, and it happened so quickly. It's just unbelievable. And I really appreciate that. Okay. So I'm going to, uh, let you go back to the recording of my interview with Antonio Bueller. I hope you enjoy it. 
Thanks for sticking with us through the commercial. This is Ben Stone back with Antonio Bueller uh, with the Peaceful Streets Project and with a bunch of other stuff that we're going to talk about. Antonio, uh, I kind of gave the teaser before the commercial, but um, homeschooling and unschooling and, and stuff like that is kind of a thing that uh, that really um, appeals to you, and you've done a lot of work in that area, right? That's right. I Back in New York, I was actually looking for a company to buy. Um, I had investors lined up who were backing me in that search, and I started focusing on education reform. Uh, related companies. And the more I looked at those, the more I realized that education reform ultimately wasn't going to help many kids um, because they were still stuck in these schools. And I came to a realization that alternative schooling, uh, homeschooling, unschooling was the way to actually help kids because you could allow them to much more likely achieve their full potential without breaking their love of learning uh, and without uh, beating them down. So I moved to Austin, Texas back in 2010 uh, to focus on homeschooling and unschooling and trying to help millions of kids break out of the uh, the traditional schooling model. I think that's really one of the most important things that we can – like if somebody says – and you hear this all the time – you know, somebody uh, looks at the overall situation that we face, especially here in America, where government is just growing at an unbelievable rate, and it's getting more and more oppressive, it seems like, by the day. We hear, you know, almost every day, if you if you let yourself watch the news, it, it just gets worse and worse and worse, and it's really easy to lose hope. And it's really easy to fall into a level of desperation where you think, well, the only thing left to do is to take up arms and fight this. Or the only thing left to do is to, you know, move to Brazil or something and hide away somewhere, go way off into the mountains and disappear. But there's another alternative, and it may take a while, but every single child that that can break free of the indoctrination and the mind the mind washing the brainwashing uh and the stifling uh oppression of traditional schools every child is that that can that we can uh you know avoid that um is a victory every single one of those children is a victory yeah and there's a lot of people who respond with well if we allow people to homeschool then they're just going to be indoctrinated by their parents and they're just going to, you know, there's a bunch of radicals out there who are going to teach their kids to be radicals. And that's fine with me um, because um, if they're, if they're homeschooled or unschooled, there's, I think a higher chance that the kids will be willing to question and they'll be more inquisitive. Um, But even if they are indoctrinated by their family with things that, with ideas that, the rest of society may not be too thrilled about. At least there's lots of different types of indoctrination as where with the state, it's just one form of indoctrination. They're just pushing, you know, the same theme across. Um, so um, I think that ultimately, if we want to live in a freer society, the more children who are homeschooled, the better it gets us there. It gets us closer. You've done some work also on getting traditional uh, higher uh, higher learning uh, organizations to recognize homeschoolers too, haven't you? Well, well, fortunately, they already do recognize homeschoolers. There's very few colleges out there that um, 
make it difficult for homeschoolers to get in. Um, I actually advocate for people to send their kids uh, to the more um, the, the more exclusive colleges and universities if it's appropriate for that student's uh, career or you know if it would um, benefit that student in a disproportionate way. I, I definitely don't think everyone should go to college. I think that college is a huge uh, drain of money, and I think a lot of people end up wasting four years of their life and a lot of money going there. But I do believe at the same time that there's a lot of benefit um, to some for going to college, especially if they wanted to you know, go into certain professions where it's a prerequisite. Um, but if people want to have an influence and people want to be able to um, have a bigger voice and if they want to spread, say, the message of liberty or they want to um, be able to raise money for a venture, you know, there's a lot of value to having uh, certain educational experiences, both for personal growth but also for branding. And in my case, having gone to West Point and having gone to Stanford, um, that really helped me out when I got arrested. It, it gave me an opportunity to get my story out there because otherwise a lot of people wouldn't have paid attention. I've been able to use that platform to give a voice to people who don't have that. You know, So um, I've been able to leverage that uh, quite well. And at the same time, when it comes to talking about education issues, um, people just appreciate, uh, you know, my education background. Um, you know, when they see Stanford and Harvard, you know, people just tend to, to be willing to listen a little bit more, uh, when I'm talking about education issues than they would have, you know, had I, you know, never gone to any of those institutions. Let's, uh, we, we kind of didn't really go into it. Let's tell the story of what happened. Well, I'll tell you what, let me tell the story. And then you correct me and tell me uh, what I get wrong of the story of your arrest back in uh, January of 2012. Um, as I understand the story, you were basically pulling into a gas station and you saw a couple cops that were handling a, a, a female uh, a lady kind of kind of rough, what appeared to be you know over uh, hmm, uh, over copping, <laughs> we might say. And you kind of just basically ask a question, hey, you know, is that necessary? Do you really have to? I don't think she's resisting or whatever. And uh, they essentially just turned their fury on you. Uh, and, you know, I hate to put it this way, but in in Austin, Tex in Austin Texas, uh, like in many uh, larger cities, there's uh, a tendency among cops but especially, I think, in Texas, there's a tendency toward uh, among cops that if they see someone that they perceive as a person of color, or they see they think they're the they think maybe they're Indian or they're Mexican or they're Latino of any kind, it it almost immediately sparks a violent reaction with a cop. Whether we're talking about Austin, whether we're talking about you know it's in it's in California, like in L.A. and stuff like that, you see it all the time. And I can't help but to wonder if that's what they thought when they saw you, and that's part of the reason that they reacted the way that they did. Um, but either way, the accusation was that Antonio spit in the face of one of the cops, and that that gave them the license to go ahead and do what they do with him. Of course, fortunately, there were witnesses. Fortunately, 
there was video, and fortunately it came out that in in fact uh, Antonio did not spit at the cop in any way, and the cop didn't like like if somebody spits in your face, you have a tendency to try to wipe it. I mean that's just kind of a common thing. Well, the cop didn't make any kind of motion in that direction. He didn't attempt to wipe his face. Nothing. So there's no indication whatsoever on the on the film or by the witnesses that uh, that Antonio spit in any way. But anyway, but correct me if I'm wrong there, Antonio. Uh, that's what it, it looked like to me. It looked <coughs> to me like they just looked around and said, oh, here's a big Indian. Let's beat the crap out of him. Because I'm sorry, but they think that way. Uh, is that am – I, am I exaggerating in this? No, I don't think you're exaggerating at all. And the reality is, is that cops destroy the lives of lots of people every day. And they certainly destroy the lives of white people every day. Um, particularly, uh, white, uh, poor, um, homeless, uh, uh, people, people in, uh, the neighborhoods that the cops think that they can get away with, uh, hurting people. Um, but there's no question that they, that they single out and target, um, minority groups as well. And, you know, for some of it, it may be embedded racism. Uh, for some of it, it just may be the way the system is set up. Um, you know, a lot of them understand that people of color oftentimes don't have the financial resources to fight. Um, there's less likelihood that they're going to be uh, politically powerful and connected. Um, so, you know, you just don't see cops going out of their way to beat the children uh, of the people in the rich parts of town. Um, you know, if they find out that someone's a congressman's son or daughter, they're probably not going to stomp their head in. Um so there is that aspect, and a lot of people want to pretend that we live in a colorblind society and that everyone's equal, and I believe that inherently we are all equal, as in we should all have the same rights, but we're not all equally treated, and there, and I just thank God that I wasn't a black person that day. If I was a young black male, I think I might have been killed. They probably would and have I, shot you. Yeah, probably, and, and you know, in Austin, Texas, even though they're Blacks actually make up a really small percentage of the population relative to pretty much every other large city in the country. Um, the blacks are the ones who always get killed by the cops. And you have to be um, pretty irrational or racist, I think, to actually believe that, well, that's because the blacks are the ones who are committing all the crimes in Austin when it's patently false. And, uh, you know, half, half, if not more, of these people who are getting killed by the cops, these young black males, uh, actually weren't even committing crimes when they were, uh, when they're, when they're, uh, being shot and killed. Um, so it is a problem. And I wish that, um, people, especially in our community would acknowledge, uh, when, um, there's racial disparity or other forms of, um, of injustice. Instead of just waving our hands and saying, well, you know, we're all equal at the end of the day. You know, no one should be treated any differently. And I agree with that. We should all be treated equally. The problem is that we aren't. And simply pointing that out doesn't make us bad or race baiters. That just makes us people who are w willing to acknowledge reality and trying to address issues that disproportionately harm certain people. I don't want anyone to be wrongfully beaten or arrested or killed by the police. I, you know, one is too many. No matter what race, no matter what gender, no, no matter you know what part of town, socioeconomic status, it doesn't matter. One is too much. But if we if we refuse to acknowledge when there's 
um, glaring injustice. We're not doing anyone any favors. We're certainly not doing ourselves any favors by turning a blind eye um, to uh, abuses just because they don't happen to people who look like us. I think this would be a good time for me to read something from Peaceful Streets Project's website. Um, it says, Mission, uh, through community organizing, engaging in non-political and non-violent direct action tactics, and utilizing new technologies, the Peaceful Streets Project seeks to bring about a cultural shift where individuals understand their rights and hold law enforcement officials accountable and communities protect and serve each other. And then it says, uh, we're not, we, oops, uh, we're committed to creating safe spaces for activists and community. No talk of using violence or political change, no insults, ad hominem, no sexism, no racism, and no hate. And I think that's a powerful, powerful statement. And it's, it's one that we've had a hard time coming to, uh, to be honest. When we started this, our focus was strictly on the police and how corrupt they were and, and how much harm that they've done uh, to society. But, you know, over the past year and a half, we've come to realize that what we do and the way that we treat other members of society um you know, is, is extremely important. And it's really hard for us to be able to take the fight against these thug criminal cops if we are unwilling to address uh, forms of oppression that exist within our groups. And so uh, we actually had a problem with sexism within our group. And, you know, I was part of that problem. Um, I wasn't doing it intentionally, but I was turning a blind eye to... um you know, some people who were acting in really crappy manners and uh, some of the stuff that I was doing where I was just, um, you know, automatically siding with men uh, when when a woman uh, disagreed with a certain man, um, you know, put, you know, putting more weight in what um, the, the, the opinion of the males in the groups were, um, you know, but more important, just not standing up for people who were being, um you know, treated poorly, uh, strictly because of, you know, say their, their gender, uh, when I was in a position of power, relative power, at least, you know, as, you know, sort of the face of the organization. And so, um, it took, you know, it was a painful process for me to actually acknowledge my shortcomings and to see that this was a problem. And then as we work with affected communities that are being abused by police, you know, there's no question that, for example, the black community is one that gets targeted by the police and, and they, and they suffer disproportionately, um, you know, from police abuse and misconduct and violence. And, you know, if there are people within our group who, um, are racist, openly racist, or maybe not even racist, but just, you know, eagerly offensive and, uh, you know, um, bigoted, you know, then that is certainly not going to help us win the fight against police abuse. And this is something um, I've had some good conversations with Jacob Crawford of We Cop Watch out of Oakland about. But, uh, you know, we can't we can't aspire to live in a society free of institutionalized violence if we can't even get ourselves straight. And if we can't stop oppressing people um, just because they're different and if we can't stop celebrating our own bigotry and hate. 
And uh, it's a painful process. It's not easy to improve oneself. Um, it was really painful for me. But, you know, I was able to finally acknowledge that some of the things that I was doing was actually creating more harm than benefit. Um, it was just completely out of line with any sort of notion of individual liberty, because I don't think that you can support individual liberty and, and, and freedom if you um, can endorse and support people who are, you know, actively and eagerly trying to um, oppress or, or marginalize other people. And then, uh, then there, there were other people who I actually didn't have much hope would come along who, uh, acknowledge that, you know, their sexism or their racism, um, or, or their, or just their behavior was actually, um, not in line with their own personal values. And so then they, they adopted and changed. And, and I just have the utmost respect for people who can look within and see their shortcomings and grow. Yeah, that is absolutely the, I think the pinnacle of morality is the ability to analyze yourself, analyze your words, analyze your actions, and and realize that you have a flaw and then deal with that flaw because so many people um, just – they just will not look in, in the moral mirror – and analyze what they're doing and what they're saying and the harm, the harmfulness of, of their actions or the hurtfulness of their words. And I'm not trying to be, you know, all politically correct and everything, but at the same time, you know, there are things that you can say that really hurt people. Uh, and, and, you know, you can push it off as, oh, well, that's just a joke or I'm just making a joke or whatever. But, uh, you know, if you're saying really harmful and hurtful things like that, I, I just don't see it as funny. That's one of the many. There's a, a whole variety of reasons why I'm not on Facebook anymore. But one of the reasons that uh, Facebook just disgusts me so bad is because there's such a flood, uh, and, and YouTube is this way as well, there's such a flood of uh, of hateful comments, and then about half the time it's like, oh, no, that was just a joke. Why are you taking that so seriously? Well, you know, I, I just don't see the humor in it. And and I, you know, I like humor. I like, I've watched Three Stooges and they hit each other in the head with things and I think that's funny. Uh, so, you know, I understand humor, but when humor is, you know, sexist or it's humor about things like rape, which you see that kind of humor on, on Facebook, and it just makes me want to just completely go away from it and never have to see it again. Yeah, I actually don't know if you you, you know what's been going on on Facebook, but... You know, this is a issue that I've addressed recently um, because basically I got baited into a conversation where, uh, you know, people have been complaining that I've been too PC and I've been too worried about words and that, you know, people just need to have thicker skins. So I got baited into a conversation and then I, you know, as I was looking at this person's page, I saw these homophobic slurs um, and then I saw sexist slurs. Um, and then I, I saw a rape joke and, and then that just, and then I, I called them out and then, you know, I just started to get attacked by all the other people who are engaged in that. Oh yeah. It's funny to call black people the N word. It's funny to call, you know, um, gay people, you know, faggots and stuff like that. And it's funny to make jokes about raping 10 year old girls. And, and I was just shocked at, at the, the eagerness at which people attacked me over simply pointing out the fact that these were just really hateful, vile things uh, to talk about. And they, they 
you know, it seems that there's people within the liberty movement who think that their right to say whatever they want trumps, you know, their, you know, personal responsibility to be decent human beings. They're the type of people who want to say, I have the right to yell fire in a movie theater because you can't infringe upon my, um, you know, freedom of speech. And it's disgusting. And the rape jokes were something that just took it to another level. You know, making jokes about, you know, giving a woman an option between sex and rape by holding a knife to her neck. Um, well, no, that's rape or rape. There's, it's not an option. And making a joke about raping a 10 year old girl, which is what I've, which is what I saw, you know, they say that they're just words and that they're just jokes, but there's actually studies, peer reviewed, uh, you know, controlled studies where rape jokes, the, uh, people even hearing the rape jokes, not even laughing at the rape jokes, but hearing the rape jokes, how that contributes to rape culture where they're much more likely to defend, uh, someone, uh, to defend the man, you know, who's been accused of raping a woman or they're much more likely to shame a woman who comes forward and says, that that she was raped or, or that she was abused and you know and and this community of people who celebrate their right to say whatever they want to no matter what type of consequences that has on anyone else what they're actually doing is they're changing the social context in a way in which they're making it easier for other people to become victims in the future and the way they look at it is, well, as long as I'm not the one committing the violence, I have no personal responsibility. And they're not acknowledging that what they're doing is they're just making it easier for people to abuse other people. And I find that to be absolutely disgusting. When you think that your right to act in the most vile way trumps your personal responsibility to be a decent human being who should care about the welfare of others. Um, I, I just, I, I get really turned off by that. I'm a huge fan of Ayn Rand. I've, I've read probably more of her books than any of the people who tell these rape jokes. Um, but I do believe that there is an aspect of being a human being because we're inherently a very social organism. We need society. There's very few misanthropes that don't have like major uh, issues um, segregating themselves from society. You know, we need society. And the last thing that we should be doing is creating, you know, building hate within our society, which ultimately, you know, destroys any chance that we have of living in a freer world. I think it's also kind of uh, an interesting note to realize that, you know, because I, I do know the specific person that you're probably referring to there because uh, I had a heads up to somebody told me that, hey, this guy's at it again. But the same person who makes those, you know, jokes is the same person who says it's okay to kill your mailman. Um, but that guy's not going out and doing that. He's kind of, in a sense, he's calling on other people to, uh, to do what he himself maybe fantasizes about or whatever, but he's afraid to take it on him, on himself. He's afraid to actually do it. He always hides behind the, oh, well, I'm just a comedian. I'm making a joke. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that gives him the license to say any kind of wretched, horrible thing that he wants. But then, and I know this from, from personal experience, you confront that same person face to face and you get a totally different 
he he's no longer the internet tough guy. All of a sudden, he's kind of a whimpering little wimp that wants to run away from you. And that's exactly what I found when I confronted him at uh, at Porkfest because I I said to him, if you you know if you want a mud wrestle, let's go right now, right here, right now in front of all these people, let's go. And he literally almost broke into a jog to get away from me. And I'm an old broken down man, you know. I, <laughs> I I'm nothing. Well, I don't know. That's I was pretty heavily armed at the moment, so maybe that was a factor involved too. But but either way, you know, he. Uh, He's willing to talk like a tough guy on the Internet as long as there's a computer screen in front of him and he doesn't have to look right in somebody's eyes. Yeah, he's a coward. There's there's no you know two ways around it. He's just a coward. Um, he's really tough behind the computer. Um, he can just launch um, just nasty insult after nasty insult because <clears throat> he doesn't have to face the person. And then... Um, when someone stands up to him, then he hides behind a non-aggression principle. And so, you know, he will write obscenely absurd uh, blog posts about how Gabby Giffords deserved to get shot, you know, how she deserved a bullet in her skull, you know, and, and he'll talk about how, you know, people should essentially go kill cops. Um, but, you know, he, he, at the end of the day, he's a coward. He would never do anything. You know, he would just hide behind others and he rides the coattails of others and he tries to act tough in their shadow. And it's really disgusting. And the thing that bothers me most about it is not that he's just such a vile human being, just a pathetic excuse, you know, for a human being. The thing that bothers me about it is he's actually making it worse, harder for those who actually believe in liberty and who want to live in a freer society. Because when he goes out and he you know, mocks the dead and he celebrates the fact that people have been killed and he celebrates the fact that uh, Gabby Giffords was shot in the head. Um, what he's doing, you know, and when he says his rape jokes and his racist, sexist, homophobic slurs, you know, what he's actually doing is he's letting the rest of the world know that these are the type of people that I want nothing to do with. These are the type of people that I do not want running society I'm actually scared of these people, um, you know, these people who celebrate killing people and celebrate other people being murdered. And so, therefore, I need the police or the military or the government to protect me. And um, I don't think that people really fully understand that. Just because they're exercising their freedom of speech to say the most vile, hateful things does not mean that they're actually helping advance the cause of liberty. What they're actually doing is they're making a very uh, strong case for less liberty because the average person is rightfully afraid of these people because what they say on the internet is so scary. Um, if I was a black person or if I was, uh, you know, a female who had been raped or something like that, I would, you know, and, and I, and I thought that this person represented sort of the liberty movement and, you know, all of his foolish friends who like all of his racist uh, jokes and his rape jokes um, if, if, if I was within those demographics, I would be like, you know what? I'd rather deal with the police. I'd rather deal with the government because these are the last people that I want, uh, you know, running society. And so I just hope that people realize that, that, you know, that this type of behavior is really harmful to the cause of liberty because it paints us all as violent, uh, racist, sexist bigots who, who, you know, celebrate, um, 
things such as uh, child rape. And, you know, and even if that's not your concern, then I think that people should, you know, think about this because, you know, just being a decent human being means calling out these instances when you have the opportunity to. And I see a lot of people just taking the stance of, you know what, it's not my responsibility. Um, they have the right to say what they want to say. And I'm just going to sit back and allow it to happen because ultimately what you're doing is you're allowing a culture, you know, you're, you're allowing, you know, an environment to grow wherein it's just more, it's just easier for people to be victimized. And I don't see how that's in line with liberty whatsoever. Calling people out is not anti-liberty. You know, and how much of a hypocrites are we if we will point to the cops, point to cops, you know, being uh, uh, often being rapists or, or beating people up for no good reason or shooting them in the back? Uh, how What kind of hypocrites are we if we call out the cops for that when we won't even – uh, you know, uh, point point out people within our movement that advocate similar behavior. What kind of hypocrites are we? You know, you can have a right, but you can also have responsibilities. And part of the responsibility and freedom of speech is watching what falls out of your mouth. You know. Yeah. The what the police do is they say, you know what? If it's a state official who does something bad, then we're gonna overlook it. And we're just going to um, we're just going to focus on crimes committed by regular people, you know. And what too many people in the liberty movement think is, well, if a government official does something stupid or wrong, then we'll go ahead and point that out. But if it's one of our own, then we'll say nothing. And so um, I, I think that ultimately, if we want to evolve as a society and we want to move closer to liberty. You know, we have to be willing to do the difficult and call out people to include the people who are going to be the most hateful and the most um, vindictive and aggressive online, um, you know, which I guess we both uh, had to deal with. Um, but calling those people out makes a big difference. And there are a lot of people who've contacted me over the past week. Um, it, you know, the people who are willing to defend bigotry and who are willing to spend more time complaining about me calling out racism and sexism and rape jokes, um, then they, you know, they're, they're more eager to call me out for that. But they would, they won't say a word about jokes about raping ten-year-old girls, which, which I find, you know, quite disturbing. But, uh, you know, if if those people, you know, were were willing to call out these, uh, you know, these offensive. Uh, types types of behavior, it would go a long way. And I've just had so many people contact me over the past week who, you know, have been abused before, who have been rape victims or or who have felt, you know, who have dealt with a lot of sexism and racism within the movement who don't want to take a stand because they see just this constant bigotry and hate from this this uh, segment of, of our community. Um, but they, they tell me offline Hey, thanks a lot for doing what you're doing. Not enough people do it. You know, lots of people support you. Um, but it's, it's one of these things where there's just social validation, um, that needs to come of it. So, um, if more people were willing to stand up and stand against rape jokes or stand against racism and sexism, you know, as, they were willing to stand against people calling out <laughs> people who do this stuff. Um, then we could actually uh, improve 
our own society improved the liberty movement where this type of behavior wasn't unchecked and where these people weren't uh, given free reign to just go around and hurt people. Um, and so what I would like to see is I, I would like to see some people stand up. I know it's hard, but just call this behavior out. And yeah, it's going to be painful and you're going to get attacked. But once enough people do it, and I certainly believe that there's a lot more people in the liberty movement who are not racist and not sexist and, and, and who don't celebrate rape jokes. But right now, they're the silent majority. And once more people start calling it out and start defending it, you know, then that social signaling will ultimately uh, change the way that people behave. And either the people who um, say these nasty things will either learn that, you know, what they should shut up and they shouldn't contribute to such a nasty environment, or maybe they should seek out another community that is, you know, that embraces racism and sexism, you know, more than what I would like to see the liberty movement uh, do. Yeah, and I'll mention violence in that too, in the sense that I've made the argument that, you know, the the very famous situation that took place where there were snipers on the roofs in uh, Keene, New Hampshire during the Pumpkin Festival, I relate that directly to the fact that uh, the same clown went on Cop Block, which is very popular with cops to go and read the stories on Cop Block, and he went on Cop Block and specifically called out the Keene activists to militarize and arm their vehicles and these other things that he called them out to do, specifically named Keene, New Hampshire, in that article. And from a, you know, I've said this before, but if if I were a chief of police or if I were a city council person or whatever, and I found out that some clown on the Internet had made those kinds of statements and specifically called out Keene, New Hampshire, you know, in that article, if if the chief of police or city council or whoever didn't ask for some kind of heightened security, then a lot of people who are of a statist mind would think, well, they're not doing their job. That chief of police is not, he's fallen down on the job. Why isn't he providing more protection? And so I think statements like that uh, cause a reaction in, in, with statists that can actually get somebody shot or can actually get somebody, you know, beaten or arrested or whatever that really could be avoided. Yeah, I, I, I think that this guy is just a, I think he's a cancer to the movement and, you know, he's a coward and he would have no problem with other people, you know, getting thrown in jail or getting killed, um, you know, because he wants to be an internet tough guy. Um, I, I find it absolutely disgusting. And words, you know, have major, major consequences. And I think that it's time that people acknowledge that and stop pretending that words are harmless, that, 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 you know, you can apply any definition to a word that you want and that, you know, the context in which you say things sometimes doesn't make, um, innocuous words very dangerous, uh, words. Um, it, it just pains me. I've been so torn over the past, uh, week as I've been dealing with this. I've actually been torn over the past six months trying to deal with sexism and racism, uh, within the movement and having a lot of sidebar conversations with people, just asking them about their use of words, um, and and some people have done amazing. I mean, I just love the fact that some people acknowledge that, you know, maybe they could do a better job. Um, but the past week of just being uh, viciously attacked by so many people who, who uh, you know, I, I, I thought were friends, 
um, because I was calling out rape jokes and racist and sexist uh, language, you know, has just been has been really depressing um, because if there's anyone that I have hope for within society, you know, if there's anyone that I believe can help us move towards a freer stateless society, um, it's, it's the people who generally believe in individual rights, but to have such a, such a strong uh, strain of racism, sexism, bigotry, um, just nasty behavior, such as celebrating rape jokes, um, either, you know, as a core to what they believe or, you know, as something that they're willing to celebrate at least or defend more so than they're willing to celebrate or defend decent human behavior um, has been really off-putting. And I'm just hoping that more people will start to stand up and start to call out the cancers within our community, just like they're willing to call out the cancers within our society when it comes from the state. Well, I want to stand right with you on that because I absolutely agree with you. And uh, I want you, I want to let you know that I'm on your side on that. And uh, if it would do any good to <laughs> to drag this guy out in the middle of the night and have a discussion with him, I'd be happy to hold one arm while you held the other. But, uh, but on the other hand, that probably wouldn't do any good because, like you said, he's such a coward that he would go right back to hiding behind his computer board and, and you know, go, uh, go right back to his uh, <laughs> uh, filth. But, um, yeah. but anyway, well, I, go ahead. I don't, have, I don't have much faith in him. I mean, he... He celebrates his bigotry. He celebrates his nasty, vile behavior. So I don't have much faith in him, um, but I do have faith in the community in general. The, you know, the, the people who generally believe that liberty is a better alternative uh, to um, state oppression. You know, I'd like to see them, you know, focus on oppression in general. But you know, what what I've done is I've tried to get people to address the issue, take the issue on, have the conversation, question whether or not they're, what they're doing is in line with liberty and hoping that they change. And uh, part of this experience has been quite, uh, has been sort of, um, you know, I guess a cleanse for me because I've been able to take out of my life a lot of people who I, I was shocked to find were more eager to defend bigotry than they were to defend just decent uh, human decency and so um, with those people out of my life and hopefully with, you know, people coming into my life who are anti-state, you know, anti-government uh, violence, but who are also anti-bigotry and hate and who don't celebrate rape, uh, um, you know, those people, hopefully, uh, if I can surround myself with them, you know, and if they can take up a bigger share of the voice of the liberty movement, then I still believe that we can do great things and that we can actually move society to a freer place. Absolutely. Absolutely. Antonio, I really appreciate you coming on the show with me today, and I want to extend an invitation anytime that you want to come back on, just drop me an email. Uh, if you have anything going on, any kind of, uh, you know, any kind of events or whatever that needs some attention, just drop me an email. And uh, you're, you're definitely welcome back on Bad Quaker Podcast. Great. Thanks a lot. I appreciate your time. And, folks, thanks for listening today. And remember to visit badquaker.com where liberty is our mission. Thanks a lot, folks.